Hello. Uh, hello. I got two free smartphones when I switched to Metro PCS. One for him and one for me. Uh, it's not for you. It's for people like me. And parrots. Uh, I knew I should have gotten a dog. Get two free Samsung Galaxy J3 Prime smartphones when you switch two lines to Metro PCS and enjoy a 4G LTE network that's more reliable than ever before. Metro PCS. Wireless figured out. Coverage not available in some areas. Sales tax not included in phone price. Excludes numbers on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro PCS in past 90 days. See store for details, terms, and conditions. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul, Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Thomas B. Sawyer. He is a novelist, playwright, illustrator, screenwriter, filmmaker, hate writer, showrunner of the classic CBS series Murder, She Wrote. Tom and I will be discussing his newly released memoir, The Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer. Good morning, Tom. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Just great, Johnny. Thanks for having me aboard. It is a pleasure to have you on the air. It has been three years since you were a guest on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio, and it is good to have you back to talk about your wonderful and enlightening memoir. So congratulations with that. Well, thank you very much. And as I said, thank you for having me. I uh, I, I, the, I'm very excited to have the memoir finally published. Fantastic. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Okay. Well, the short form, I grew up uh, as an only child in Chicago. And uh, um, from age 12 on, uh, I, had be, I, w- I drew pictures and I loved comic strips. And in those days, they had these syndicated story comic strips realistically drawn Terry and the Pirates and Steve Canyon and the Heart of Julia Jones and it was my ambition from age 12 to go to New York in those days you had to go to New York uh, and pursue that career uh, and become a, uh, a comic strip artist my hero was Milton Kniff who did Terry and the Pirates Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I did go to, I uh, dropped out of college, went to New York when I was 20 years old, started drawing comic books for the likes of Stan Lee at Marvel Comics, uh, and uh, graduated quickly to advertising illustration, which paid a lot better than comic books, 10 to 100 times more money. And uh, uh, I, in those days, I was very fixated on proving to myself and to my father that I wasn't going to be a loser because I had not gotten a college degree, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I became very successful in the advertising business. Uh, It was known as the Norman Rockwell of line illustration. Uh Uh, 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 But quickly realized uh, before I was 30 that monetary success and achievement wasn't what was going to drive me i it had up until then and i found it the accomplishments meaningless and i shifted my goals i made a pact with myself that i would never again do anything just for the money well i also uh became bored with the idea of doing a comic strip 
and uh, shifted to filmmaking, began making commercials and films uh, and directing them and off of Broadway in New York and discovered that I... I, I I wanted to go to Hollywood and try to break into the real movie business. And so we came to Hollywood, uh, my wife and uh, my wonderful wife, Holly, and our two little kids, and uh, without knowing anybody. And I got very lucky and uh, became a not a movie director, as I had originally thought, but as a television writer, producer, director, and uh, uh, had a, a wonderful career where they paid me for having fun. It was, of course, highlighted by the, being uh, the showrunner and uh, and head writer for Murder, She Wrote, which incredibly ran for 12 seasons. And even though, Johnny, even though it went out mm-hmm. of production 21 years ago, it my, that credit still opens doors for me. Well, I so certainly remember I, Murder, She Wrote. I mean, it's just a fantastic show. Well, it really was. And, then, of course, it was, you know, fantastic to be able to to work with and write for Angela Lansbury, one of the world's mm-hmm. greatest actresses. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she was a, a total delight and pleasure to work with. I remember growing up and had the opportunity to watch Murder, She Wrote, and I may sound kind of silly in a way because I would think Hollywood or, say, the TV industry, when you talk about series, when you talk about shows, right, that runs all the time, you have all these handsome, good-looking actors or beautiful actresses as the lead role, and then yeah. you have this wonderful, wonderful, sweet lady, <laughs> who is the anchor of the show, very poised, very calm, that you could sort of relate every day to. I guess there's good acting in a way itself because that sort of the casualness, the very relaxed demeanor. I hope that makes oh, sense yeah. what I'm saying. Well, she was wonderful in that regard. Uh, it was it, it was interesting, though, that you mentioned, you know, the calmness of, uh, of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh because one of the one of the keys in writing for television or any kind of writing is that you have to have conflict on some level in every mm-hmm, scene, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. disagreeing with each other, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. and especially in television, breaking into that business, we were cautioned because it was in those days it was all commercial television, you know, sponsored by paying paying. Uh, companies right right we we had to make sure that they stay tuned till the commercial break that was our challenge as writers and in order to do that it meant that we must never bore them for a second because they're sitting there with the clicker in their hands and if we do bore them we they will change channels well that meant having at least some level of conflict in every moment in your show in, mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. sitcoms, of course, every line is an argument. But in a drama, <laughs> yes. in a drama like Murder, she wrote mysteries. Uh, of course, that was not necessarily the case. But I also, this is just a brief anecdote. Uh, I, here I was writing for one of the world's great actresses, and I, I had watched all of her movies and was continuing to watch them, mm-hmm, and realized mm-hmm. that her range was 
you know, incredible, you know, right. range of emotions that she could portray. And and it, I found it frustrating because the Jessica Fletcher character had very little emotional involvement with anything that was going on. She solved the mm-hmm. murder, but, you know, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. None, we didn't use anything approaching Angela's range of, of acting talent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I contrived to give her one moment in every show, and I would instruct the other writers to do the same, at least one moment where somebody would, the, a scene, we'd do a scene that was the equivalent of her visiting someone and asking questions, and they saying, that person saying, Mrs. Fletcher, I don't have time for this, get out of my office, or words <laughs> to that effect. And yeah. she would get her back up, you know, and the whole... Yeah level of the show would come to life and yet we were still keeping it on that very civilized <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 she came across to me at least like my aunt or something you know what i'm talking oh, about yeah. or the lady yeah. next door that i could relate to but she happens That's to be right. nonchalant Absolutely. hey she's got a good sense of investigative sort of a analytical kind of mind so he made it interesting rather than just some old lady well, the prime is over, I guess, for lack of a better term. Oh, absolutely. And, and of course, you know, there's a certain suspension of disbelief that we're asking of the audience that this, this lady, for 264 episodes over 12 years, every week she just, 22 times a year, she happens to be in the neighborhood of, of the latest murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's quite a coincidence. We used to refer to her on the set as the angel of death. <laughs> and we used to we used to refer to Cabot Cove as the murder capital of America. One, one of my one of my favorite souvenirs from the show, the crew uh-huh. would give us little gifts every year and I uh-huh. have a coffee mug uh, a coffee mug that I treasure and on one side it's got a fake logo that says Cabot Cove Coroner. <laughs> And on the other side, it says, if you lived here, you'd be dead by now. <laughs> What's interesting is that Hollywood at that time was shooting movies all over the place. New York, sure. L.A. Yep. But here you have a show that sort of in the background highlighted a wonderful little city. And I'm not saying respect your cab because not necessarily uh, little, but it's that, oh, that well, nice flavor. It was uh, Peter Fisher's concoction. And yeah. I must say, he did a great job of uh, coming up with the concept and, and mm-hmm. executing it. And, uh, you know, it was an honor to, to, to have had anything to do with the show, much less to write 24 of them and, uh, and, and run the series for five mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. How did you discover you have a talent for writing? Is someone in your family a writer, so to speak, that somehow you... No. Managed to get this uh, talent? Not that I know of. And I, you know, initially had the the gift for drawing, and Mm -hmm, but I, mm -hmm. I, I I was fascinated by the idea of telling stories, you know, using the drawings, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, didn't really think that I had a particular gift for it. I just did it i you know i used to draw comics when i was i mean my earliest drawings have you know figures with dialogue balloons over their heads uh-huh, uh-huh. and uh uh putting words in their mouths and uh 
so when I got to New York and started drawing comic books, I did write a few a few of the stories, but mostly they were written by other people. And uh, but I had I kept trying to put together comic strip concepts that would sell that I would have written myself. And you know, it's it's a good question you ask, Johnny, because when I got to California, uh, I I my calling card was a movie, a low budget movie mm-hmm. that I was going to direct, and I had a writer lined up for it, and he got a job on Saturday Night Live, it was in its early years, and uh, so I had to write it myself. Mm-hmm. And I did. It was based on an old joke, a ho- what we call a shaggy dog story in the business. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, the movie ended up being called Alice Goodbody. It was an R-rated comedy. But mm-hmm. it was basically uh, 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 this joke, uh, based on this joke. And uh, mm-hmm. the, going back to that, what I realized gradually once I got to Hollywood that I not only wasn't faking it and they weren't going to catch on that I didn't know what I was doing, uh, <laughs> but I knew more about writing than I thought I did, nor more uh, about storytelling. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons for it was that back in in my early days in the comic books in New York, I shared a studio up on mm-hmm. 57th Street. With several writers and a and a uh, one one writer and a bunch of comic book artists, and there was something about drawing pictures for a living. You could talk while you were doing it. Right brain, left brain. I'm not sure what the mm-hmm, phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And we had this routine where one of one of us would come in in the morning with a joke that we had just heard, and. I'd tell the joke, and then for the next hour and a half or two hours, we would deconstruct the joke. We would take it apart and what is called in the business, punching it up. We mm-hmm. would say, well, what if you put this sentence in front of that one or this word instead of that one, or et cetera, et cetera. And we would tweak how to tell that joke so that it got mm-hmm. funnier. Well, mm-hmm. once I got to Hollywood, I realized that basically if you can if you understand joke structure you know, you fundamentally know how to tell a story with a beginning middle and an end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's true mm-hmm. and uh that's that was uh that was how i discovered a long-winded answer to your question <laughs> no no that's interesting though you were basically an illustrator so somebody yeah. tells you the story, and you have to put it into a, I guess, picture book for like a better term here. That's got to be very tough because you have to sort of put my thoughts, my story into picture that sort of in motion kind of thing. How yeah. challenging was that? Well, it was challenging. Uh, I mean, it was always challenging, and in in point of fact. Uh, Challenge has been a requirement for me with everything I've done through my uh, my entire life. Uh, if I a, basically my comfort zone is not being sure I can pull the next thing off, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, by that I mean that if I'm not challenged by it, if I'm sure that I 
that that I can do it. I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was one of the reasons that I changed my mind about uh, about doing a comic strip mm-hmm. was that I became acquainted with all of my heroes who were doing them for a living. And in those days, it would, it paid astronomically. These guys were all making three, four, five hundred thousand dollars a year when that was serious wow. money. Yeah. And and they were all all of them, virtually every one of them that I knew was damaged goods. They were oh, they wow. had drinking problems. They had they were in this velvet line trap. They mm-hmm. had womanizing problems, whatever, and. They were just the unhappiest, bored out of their minds bunch of guys mm-hmm. I ever saw in my life. Mm. Bored because they, they every day for you know twenty five years, yeah. do a comic strip with the same size pieces of paper and the same tools, and never a sense that you were done and moving on mm-hmm. to another project. It's a terrible trap to find yourself in. Yeah, and yeah. I just uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to be in that, and so that was what made me shift my gears to filmmaking and mm-hmm. the challenges that went with that. And again, the kind of writing that I had done was very cinematic. You know, mm-hmm. the comic mm-hmm. strips mm-hmm. were not unlike uh, 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 you know drawn pictures drawn right. to illustrate an ongoing story. What's interesting you just said just now is because the fact that you initially, as an illustrator, had to illustrate someone else's thought process in terms of a character or a play or an action, sure. how much has that sort of gradually permeates to your own style of writing a story yourself now, on the other hand, because you are the, for lack of a better term, the director of that actual sequence versus... Exactly, to, and, I, yeah. and I literally mm-hmm. write my, my scenes when I write a novel. Mm-hmm. I write my scenes, I think of myself as directing my actors. Right. That's the way I, that's the way I approach it. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I, I try to, you know, for instance... Uh, once I took up novel writing, I began to look at novels in a different way because now I was going to be trying to write them. And I discovered that that over and over again, writers who wrote novels, who busted their humps to try to not mm-hmm. be repetitive, not try to right. you know, be cliche, would settle for writing when they had to attribute dialogue to this character or that, they'd say he said or Jack said or she right, said. Right. And I thought, you know, it's so repetitious and so boring and mm-hmm. I'm I, I had it in my, you know, head firmly that I had to be entertaining right. at all times. Right. I said to myself, right. why you know when you when you say when you write it as he said <laughs> you're basically saying that your actor your character is standing there with his or her arms hanging at their sides so i made a pact with myself that part of my style part of my writing style would be that i would never settle for he said or she said mm-hmm. i would always if i had to credit dialogue to this person or that person, for clarity, 
I would describe their body language. I would describe their acting, what they were doing, a gesture, a shrug, a yeah. grin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, and I've never, ha- I never have in my uh, four novels that I've, mm-hmm. or three that have been published, I have never settled or ri- or used the phrase he said or anything like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always describe what they're doing, and and sometimes it tells you that they don't even need to answer; they could just do it with a look. <laughs> Very interesting. Very, very interesting. By the way, you're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. I'm Johnny Tan, your host, and my guest for this morning is Thomas B. Sawyer. He is a novelist, playwright, illustrator, screenwriter, filmmaker, hit writer, showrunner of the classic CBS series, Murder, She Wrote. We're discussing his newly released memoir, The Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer. Tom, why did you decide to write The Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer? Well, I had been interested in, uh, as as my careers evolved and my life went on, I began to gradually realize, Johnny, how incredibly lucky I had been. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over and over, when when I would revisit moments in my life that at the time that they happened to me, I just took them for granted that this is the way it works for everybody. It had been a continuing repetitive process of then it gradually sinking in as time passed that no, this or that event, this or that passage in my life had it was not ordinary. I mean, the way I got started in television as a television writer, uh, you know, is a is a classic example of that, and we can go into that later. But yeah. that that I had been the recipient of and the user of extraordinary good luck, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to explore a, a, write the the memoir as much for self examination and catharsis as mm-hmm. to entertain other people. And it was it, it it was an amazing process, Johnny, because writing it and I did it over a period off and on of eleven years, revisiting those times in my life where I you know, this luck had worked for me, whether it was you know, meeting my wife or or, mm-hmm. or started at this or breaking into that. I came to realize that I had something to say in that area to, to readers about the phenomenon that I call putting myself in luck's way, putting myself mm-hmm. where luck can happen. And uh, uh, that if, if, my life has a pattern. That's it. Mm-hmm. I, I, and and not only did I put myself where luck could happen, but I lunged at it when it came along. I wanted to. I wanted to try to communicate that to people in my mm-hmm. memoir. It's a beautifully written memoir. I love reading it, and I also love the companion book, Nine Badass Secrets for Putting Yourself in Luck's Way. I thought that was really. 
a wonderful well, title. Well, <laughs> it's just you. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, thank you. And again, that's an example of what I mean by luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and 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 one of the things I recommend in the book is networking, getting yourself not by email, not even by picking up the phone and talking, which nobody does anymore, but and not by Facebook, but by getting off your butt and going out mm-hmm. and mixing face-to-face with people mm-hmm. and hopefully mm-hmm. people, some who have the same interests as you. Uh, join, uh, uh, if you want to write, uh, join a writer's group, join several, you know, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. Well, in the case of, of Nine Badass Secrets, this brilliant young woman, Tamara Ryder, uh, Harvard-educated and uh, had been in media in Boston, uh, m- my wife Holly and I met her and her husband at uh, Mystery Writers uh, meetings mm-hmm. going back some years and we became friends social friends so she wanted to read my memoir the minute I was finished with it before I even sold it made the publishing deal and I sent her the file and she calls me all excited the next morning she said Tom I read your memoir and I love it and she said I got this (laughs) great idea for a companion book she was breathless on the phone she said, I read the memoir twice last night, and she said, I, I got this great idea for a companion book. It's called Nine Badass Secrets for Putting Yourself <laughs> in Luck's Way. Uh-huh. And each of the secrets, she said, should be illustrated by an excerpt from your memoir, one of the mm-hmm. real mm-hmm. events that happened in your life. Well, yeah. so what I'm saying is here, here this book that we are talking about would not have happened had I not put myself in Luck's way yeah. and her too. I thought he was fantastic. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. I just love the way you laid out your memoir, but one of the chapters that sort of kind of set up the tone for the rest of your life, so to speak, is the chapter on destiny. Please share that chapter with us. Well, <laughs> Again, it was destiny. I I grew up in Chicago, only child. My mother's side of the family, she was one of nine children, nine uh, brothers and sisters. And so I had 23 first cousins, one on my father's side and the rest on my mother's side. And uh, we'd see each other socially and what have you. And uh, to be honest with you, uh, none of my cousins was all that interesting except for one Mm -hmm. her name was Ruthie Mae McMahon and she had grown up in Benton Harbor Michigan and she had become by the time she was 16 a a band singer she sang with big bands toured the country this was even before popular recording you know song recording was big. And uh, finally, she went to Hollywood, where she became a movie actress. She, she appeared, she was beautiful. And she appeared in 20, uh, 32 movies, 32 movies in her career, I believe. 
uh, mostly what we called in those days B pictures, the second feature of mm-hmm. the double, double feature, mm-hmm. uh, lower budget, etc. A lot of more westerns. She made a bunch of westerns with Roy Rogers and his wife. And uh, anyway, she was my hero. She was my my childhood hero. And so when I'm 14, my parents and I decide for a summer holiday to drive to Los Angeles, where a big part of it is going to be for me to 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 see my cousin Ruthie, my mm-hmm. my hero. And uh, so we arrive, and I'm totally starstruck by the movies everyone was in those days. And uh, we arrive on a on a hot day, and uh, uh, we go to Ruthie's house in Beverly Hills, and she, during the this casual conversation, and I'm of course dazzled by mm-hmm. her, and what a knockout she is. She says, "Hey, Tommy, it's really hot. Do you, uh, what do you say we go <laughs> swimming?" And I thought all I could think of was, "Yeah, it's great." And all I could think of was, "Oh boy, I'm going to get a chance <laughs> to swim in the Pacific Ocean instead of Lake uh-huh. Michigan." Mm-hmm. So she said, well, grab your trunks. And uh, so I did. And we climb into her Cadillac and we go tootling off around a few turns in Beverly Hills. And she pulls into a driveway of a house. And I don't know what what's going on, whether we're going to be picking somebody else up or what. She says, come on. And we walk into the backyard and it, there's a swimming pool behind this house. OK, so we're now at a at somebody's house and we're going to get in their swimming pool. And uh, I said, Who, whose house is it? Whose pool is this? And she says, William Powell. Well, William Powell, <laughs> you're, a lot of your listeners, of course, won't know who he was, but he was a mega movie star back then. Mm-hmm. And Ruthie and his wife, whose nickname was Mousy gorgeous actress herself, uh, were best friends from Benton Harbor, Michigan. That's where we were going to go swimming. So mm-hmm. I go in the pool house and get into my trunk, and I come out, and I'm this skinny, knobby-kneed, <laughs> 14-year-old, and I, I am introduced to this gorgeous woman in a strapless uh, top and shorts, and my cousin is in her bathing suit, and it's William Powell's wife. Mm-hmm. And they sit down at the end of the pool, the two of them at a table, over drinks while I'm paddling around the pool. Well, at one point, I couldn't take my eyes off of them because they were both such knockouts. And I'm standing in the shallow end of the pool, just staring at the two of them sitting mm-hmm. at this table at the, up the steps at the end. And all of a sudden, Mrs. Powell's top falls down around her waist. <laughs> and these were the, this was the first time I had seen bare boobs in my life, mm-hmm. in, in real life, <laughs> seen, seen photographs of them. But, and these were very awesome, serious Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, transfixed. Well, that was my first day in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. My second day, I was taken on to a soundstage as Ruthie's guest, where I shook hands with Errol Flynn, who was then the 
the major romantic action mm-hmm. movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the following night, my mother's cousin from New York, who was married to the guy who owned and published the New York Daily News, uh, the tabloid newspaper, uh, took us to dinner at the Bel Air Hotel, which was the the priciest hotel in Los Angeles then and still is, I believe. And uh, she, uh, we had just sat down at our tables for dinner, and everybody's attention was sort of, we were looking at our menus, except that everybody's attention was quickly drawn to the entry door uh, where this dapper-looking guy with a pencil mustache had just entered with this gorgeous drop-dead girl on his arm. And the guy was in this immaculately tailored blazer and so on. And my mother's cousin from New York calls out, raises her arm and waves at him. She says, oh, Howard, come and join us. It was Howard Hughes, again, a a legendary figure in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. She says, come join us. Those were my first three days in Hollywood. And as I say... (laughs) I was destined to end up there. <laughs> hey, I don't blame you. Believe me. <laughs> I mean, how can you top that? <laughs> right, right. The reason I chose that chapter, because as you know, life is a journey, right? So oh, it sure is. we're trying to formulate our lives here. And really, from the age of, say, puberty at 14, like you say, your first encounter with life and gorgeous women and so forth, you're trying to shape yourself up to where you're heading to. I mean, of course, everything is fluid. Don't get me wrong. But it's sort of like life is a buffet line. And so you have to flavor different things. And then if you like certain things, you go back for seconds. Exactly. Exactly. And and in this case, in this case, I, it was like, it was, I mean, I didn't realize (laughs) at the time that that fate would, would, would bring me, you know, finally to Hollywood. But looking back on it, it was certainly, uh, you know, a, that was certainly a factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fast forward a few years, you spent some time in Japan. You were quite an entrepreneur in Japan. So please share with us that time span of your life. Well, I got myself sent to Japan because uh, I had been stationed in America. I got drafted and and I was stuck in the army for two years, and I hated every moment of it. Uh, the discipline was not my style, and following <laughs> orders, I, I had been a, a, a oh a, a misfit in that regard. Mm-hmm. Childhood mm-hmm. on, I got thrown out of school every uh, at least once a year, studying in about the fourth grade <laughs> uh, for you know not following rules that I thought were not worth following. So anyway, I, I, I joined, I, once I got drafted, I got stationed in America in, at Aberdeen, Maryland, but I really didn't like the nitpicky discipline and stuff we had, to, the orders we had to follow. And I had already had a, a year or so in, as, a, as a comic book artist in, in uh, New York, and I thought, why not, why not, it, try to get the use the army to advance my career. So I got myself sent to Tokyo. Uh, and there was a chance, of course, that I would get sent on to Korea. But uh, I, my plan was to get myself on Pacific Stars and Stripes 
which was a GI daily newspaper, a tabloid that was published in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I got there to this replacement depot, went to the phone book, found the, the phone number for Stars and Stripes, looked at uh, 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 that day's issue of the paper and read on the masthead that this certain uh, major was in charge. And I went to a phone booth and called up the Stars and Stripes and asked to speak to the major by name. And he came on the phone and I said, look, uh, major, this is who I am. And I said, I was a very successful commercial artist back in New York. And uh, I really think I can be of great service to the military uh, if I'm working on your newspaper as a staff artist. Well, he got me transferred to Stars and Stripes, and uh, I got stationed in Tokyo. We, Our offices were in downtown Tokyo in the Nippon Times building, uh, and I discovered that I loved Japan. It was fascinating. It was like being on another mm-hmm. planet. And uh, they, plus the islands itself, Honshu, had these great attractions up in the mountains, the Japanese Alps and what have you. And it very quickly became apparent to me that I couldn't really enjoy Tokyo. And I had a lot of freedom, uh, free time with the, working on, on Stars and Stripes on the $60 a month that I was being paid. So I had a Japanese girlfriend, and she introduced me to a, a, a basically a, a gangster a Japanese gangster by the name of Mr. Hoshino, who drove, who who dressed like a movie gangster with the fedora and the, the <laughs> coat and the whole thing, and the brim pulled down all the way around his. Mm-hmm. And he was a black marketer. What he did was he, we, we they, the army had these post exchange PXs. They were basically discount stores for soldiers. For the military, where you could go in and you could buy a Rolex watch for half of what it would cost if you bought it in a store, or a, a Leica camera, or a TV set, or you name mm-hmm. it. And, and Mr. Hoshino gave me several hundred dollars and got me started. Oh, and, and cigarettes. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. you bought a carton of cigarettes for a dollar in the PX, and they sold. To a black marketer for two dollars, mm-hmm. so you made a hundred percent profit on everything. Uh, the one catch was, of course, you had to uh, sign a, a slip of papers promising that you would not resell anything you bought in the PX to mm-hmm. anyone who did not have PX privileges, quote unquote, meaning the Japanese. So you signed, <laughs> you signed those, and what the hell? And then you turned the stuff over immediately to Mr. Hoshino who would pay you 100% profit. And mm-hmm. suddenly I was making, you know, I mean, in the year that I was in Tokyo, I made about twenty-five or $30,000, which was yeah. enough money in those days to really enable me to enjoy Japan. Right. And uh, it was a blast. Uh, I, uh, my, my brief life in crime, I call it. What's interesting about it, again, it's about you discovering yourself. But at the same time, as you go through life in reading your memoir, these are little things that sort of contribute into your pot. 
when we talk about memoirs, a long time ago, I had someone told me, it's like we walk around like a monk. We have this little bowl in front of us. And whatever goes in there, that's what the collective experience we experience in life. And then somehow, somewhere, based on our own intuition and based on our own creativity, when I say our own, of course, it's through divine guidance in some ways, you put all this thing together to cook your own pot of gumbo, for lack of a better term here. And in your case, you were able to parlay everything into the things that you have done from then on. And each level of your life, it's a layup shot to the next one, to the next one. That's that's an interesting way of putting it, and yeah, uh, I mean, I again looking back on my extremely fortunate life, mm-hmm. uh, it it I had this gift for putting myself where luck could happen to me, mm-hmm. and I had mm-hmm. the gift for grabbing onto it, and no small part of it was a, a, an absolute unshakable belief in myself that I could do yeah. damn near anything I wanted to do. And uh, uh, and also, I always felt, I mean, one of my password, uh, you know, cliche lines is, hey, what's the worst that can happen? They'll have me taken out and shot. <laughs> I mean, I, and I've been taken out and shot many times, and I'm still here to talk about it. Right, right. So true. Oh, I mean, so you gotta you gotta be willing to take a few chances, mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. guess that you know the fact that I had been able to basically thumb my nose at the rules in, yeah. in yeah. school and then in the army gave me confidence that I could. Right. You know that I. I mean, I obviously I didn't want to do anything that would get me sent to prison or or, right, or do anything. Right that way but it made me believe that i could at least try and mm-hmm. do whatever i wanted to try and so true. and the worst that could happen is i'd fail at it right right so true and and failure for a lot of people it was years before i realized that you know how how other people are sensitive to rejection mm-hmm. I, the this great asset that my parents gave me with all their verbal browbeating was mm-hmm. I was immune to put downs. I, I my assumption if someone rejected me was that they were out of their minds. I didn't have to think about it any further than that. And That's it was fantastic. Years, then it was years before I gained perspective, Johnny, where I mm-hmm. at the time that. I was conducting myself in this way. I just assumed that this is the way everybody does it. And mm-hmm. it was years, for instance, before I realized that other people were vulnerable to rejection. You know, that uh, if somebody turned them down, that was going to be the end of everything. I didn't care because I, in, in once I got to Hollywood, for instance, I always assumed that any idea that I had, if it got rejected, hell, it isn't the last idea I'm ever going to have. Right. That's a a great asset. Yeah, that was a great asset for you to have. You're listening to From My Mama's Kitchen. My guest is Thomas Sawyer. He is a novelist, playwright, illustrator, screenwriter, filmmaker, head writer, showrunner for the classic CBS series Mother She Wrote. We're discussing his newly released memoir, the Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer. 
I'm your host, Johnny Tan. You mentioned about that sort of resiliency that you have, and that allows you to have that opportunity to take risk. Risk sometimes it's sort of a, a layup to being lucky because then you were really focused and determined. And I'm glad that you shared your thoughts about you didn't realize that some people are a little bit more sensitive. And what's interesting, you kind of covered that in the early part of your life because of your name and so forth. And there were times where you were picked on, but you found solutions to overcome that. What I'm alluding to, whether it's a joke or not, bullying exists all the time. And we are not necessarily immune to it, but it's how we parlay that into a positive way of thinking. So share that period of time, if you don't mind, with us, because it's like you were just letting it roll over you and you said, so what? I'm going to find a solution to it. Yeah, I mean, uh, my, my, uh, my earliest experience, of course, was my parents uh, constantly on my case. Uh, I mean, to this day, I, about three o'clock every afternoon, I hear my mother's voice saying, Tommy, you're not living up to your potential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I heard that so many times. It was like you know, it's like a phonograph record, and uh, uh, and it, what what it was was I I was a very bright, precocious kid. I had some natural gifts. I started drawing when I could first hold a pencil, and uh, displayed some talent in that direction. But but basically, I guess. You know, and again, I didn't realize this actually until a few years ago when I saw the movie Social Network, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I I was surprised at the character that I identified with in the movie because he was not he was the protagonist, but he was not especially attractive personality. Mm-hmm. But I identified with the Zuckerberg character. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I did, I, and it was only a part identification, but I I recognized that like him, I was always the smartest guy in the room. I had never thought of myself consciously on that level ever before, but I always was from the time I was about six or seven. The difference between the Zuckerberg character and me mm-hmm. was I never rubbed other people's noses in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 I I from the time I was about eight years old, my parents' friends, adult friends, they would come to visit, and their conversations were so boring that I used to I used to manipulate consciously manipulate the subject that they were talking about to to get on a more interesting topic for me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that and. So all through school, again, I had this astronomical IQ. Uh, they, that, that was a, the way they rated the intelligence in those days. I don't mm-hmm. know if they would. But, uh, I, but I, I, I was bored with school from the time I got into the fifth grade. I basically dropped out because the, what they were teaching us was stuff that I just did not hold my interest. And so I basically, you know... I barely graduated from from high school. I got I was 425th in a class of 500, and you can imagine my parents beating me up verbally over <laughs> uh, o- over this. Uh, 
because my father, you know, he, he was an engineer, right. and uh, he had been, uh, you know, a victim of the Depression and what mm-hmm. have you. So he was uh, very, very conscious of success. And the way you achieved success was you got a college degree and you went out and you got a job. Well, you know, mm-hmm. ironically, uh, looking back on my life, I've never had a real regular job in my entire life. I mean, the closest mm-hmm. I ever came was having a gig or a season at a time or a few seasons right. on television shows. But you never consider and And again, one of the gifts that I got, Johnny, was mm-hmm. that when I went to New York to start in the comic books, which is with the bottom rung in those days, the comic mm-hmm. books were, were, were not regarded with the prestige that they are today. Uh, I walked into a world where nobody had a job. None of the other artists ever had nine to five jobs. Right. They just uh, accepted that that was the way the business worked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I did. I never felt insecure. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. It, right. I'll, you know, make stuff happen next. Right. You know, and right. and, and like that. And uh, plus, as I said, I had this gift of a lot of confidence in myself. Believing, believing in myself, and I think it's terribly important to believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. So true. What were some of the fondest memories for you while working with the various actors and actresses? Oh God, I, the, the 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 sheer fun. I mean, I was literally throughout my television career. I was I would have paid them to do what I was doing, Johnny. I was paid for having fun. And the most <laughs> of all that you can have with your clothes on is being a showrunner on a mm-hmm. on a successful television series, because in a collaborative art form, which television and film is, it's the closest you can come to having absolute control over what the end product. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that, I had the final say uh, on scripts set design, costume, music, the editing, you you name it. Who who mm-hmm. was who would be my director, etc., etc., etc. And so in the process of doing that, I had some wonderful experiences with with uh actors uh uh Buddy Hackett and and Mickey Rooney as well as of course my, my leads like you know, Jerry Orbach and mm-hmm. Angela Lansbury, we became personal social friends. And mm-hmm. uh, and it was just, it was very heady and a, a wonderful, these people were so wonderful to be around. And mm-hmm. you get to know them. Uh, you And of course, I, I happened to, again, part of my luck, we moved to California from... Uh, Manhattan with uh, two little kids and my wife and uh, and uh, we lucked into renting a house in Malibu. We're still in the same house. Wow. I mean, after 40 years. Yeah, and, that's fantastic. And it turns out, you know, we we're 
we're we're a hundred feet from the water. We're up on a bluff with seventy feet of lawn facing the ocean. I from our wow. patio, we we can't <laughs> see another house. And yeah. uh, and uh, across the street from us, our beach houses built on stilts. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we hear the ocean all night, the surf, and it. We we lucked into paradise, but it's right. also we lucked into a place that's full of people in the business, mm-hmm. and so you know people like Jack Klugman and and you name it. I mean, my my neighbor two doors away is Mira Sorvino, the only Harvard graduate yeah. ever to to win an <laughs> Academy Award. <laughs> And uh, it, it's just, it, it was heady from the beginning, and it's even right. more so. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. You talk about being in Luxway, and how about, how low was the lowest experience you ever had? Wow. I, you know, I suppose when I first got to New York, mm-hmm. and, uh, I was showing my samples around because uh, that's what you did. You you came mm-hmm. with samples and you got appointments with art directors at various magazines and publications and comic book houses and so on. And uh, you show them your work. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably the lowest happened a couple of weeks after I got to New York. Maybe my first week here. And uh, this sort of gruff, middle-aged art director, uh, I showed him my samples, and he uh, took the cigar out of his mouth. He said, Tom, your stuff isn't very good. You really ought to think about going back to Chicago. Wow. Now, that would have, I know, in retrospect, destroyed most people. Yeah. It, It didn't me because... By then, I had acquired my bulletproof ego, and I knew, <laughs> I knew without having to process it, that this guy was out of his freaking mind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but I also was astute enough, fortunately astute enough, to realize that he had a point about my samples. My samples didn't look like comic book work, which was what I was trying to get, and that I had damn well better fix that so mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. my samples walk the walk and talk the talk. So I promptly sat down at the at the table in the apartment I was staying in and drew sample comic book pages that looked like comic book pages. And that is how I got started drawing comic books. And by the way, uh, a story that many of your your uh, listeners might enjoy. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, just still getting started, and I had learned already that you know the comic books didn't pay very well in those days. It was like twenty five or thirty dollars a page for penciling and inking a comic book. That's a lot of work. And so, but I also learned that the key to getting to the next level financially in that profession, which was advertising and magazine illustration, which paid from 10 to 100 times as much, was that you had to be able to draw pretty girls and handsome guys. One day I go to see Stan Lee at Marvel Comics. Now, 
the superheroes were just getting started in those days, so Stan wasn't as famous as the legend that he is now. He's a billionaire, and, uh, you know, the Marvel movie mm-hmm. features, you know, are all, he owns a piece of all of them. But anyway, he was a charming guy, and he looked at my samples and said, yeah, I like your work, Tom, I'll put your right to work. Well, I, 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 without, again, without processing it, I said, well, there is just one thing, Stan, and I must preface this by saying that in those days, the superheroes were dissed by the most of the artists. We referred to them as underwear characters, <laughs> very demeaningly. And I said, so there's one, just one thing, Stan, I don't want to do your underwear characters. I want to mm-hmm. do your romance books so I can get practice drawing pretty girls and handsome men so I can get out of this damn business and into something mm-hmm. that pays. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed and put me right to work doing his romance books, which I did for about two years. And then uh-huh. I graduated into advertising, where I literally mm-hmm. got as much as 100 times what I would have gotten for a comic book page. Very interesting. You guys are still friends, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that right? Yeah, I, I, it's funny, uh, <laughs> not close, but but, yeah. but on, on impulse a few years ago, I, uh, I, I got his email address, and I emailed him and reintroduced myself and uh-huh. said, I'd love to get together with you, Stan, and talk about old times. My phone <laughs> rang morning at 8.30, and it was Stan Lee, and we talked for a half hour, and he could not have been more charming or more fun, and, and you know, it was really, really sweet, uh, and uh, we've, we haven't gotten together face-to-face, but uh, yeah. uh, he, he's, uh, I guess he has health issues and what have you, and doesn't yeah, get yeah. out a lot, but yeah. uh, but what a pleasure to uh, to to revisit that stuff and revisit someone who is now a world famous legend in that way. Fantastic! What would you like for the readers to gain from reading the Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer and the Nine Badass Secrets? Well, again, I, the, the the what I'd like for them to get you can you can have a really fun life. But it's up to you to make it that way. To mm-hmm. to and one of the ways the, and the, the the lesson I hope to impart. It's my last piece of advice on the last page of the memoir. Is put yourself in luck's way. Put yourself in situations where luck can happen to you. Uh, when when I an example. When I got to California, when we moved here, I did not know a soul. I had I had one introduction to a former New York agent who was now out here. And other than that, I did not know anybody. Well, we, in those days, we did a social thing, which was common then, is less common now, but it and we didn't even call it what it became came to be known as, which was networking. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. socialized. We went to dinners and parties, and we meet people who, I mean, some of them were not in the business, but some of them were players. And the the reality of 
meeting people that way, of getting acquainted with people that way it, on a social level is you, you can be yourself. And somehow, if you, you, if you appear at those parties, you are accepted as one of them. Their doors are open to you. Mm-hmm. But, but, mm-hmm. but I, I just, just, there's a parenthetical little thing that I hadn't thought about in years and it gave me a laugh that I shared with my wife in the last couple of days. I was contacted by the mother of a uh, young woman who is graduating from Yale in a couple of weeks who wants to move to Hollywood to become a writer. And the mother was asking if she could put her daughter in touch with me and let her pick my brain. And I said, of course. And uh, uh, she, uh, the next day I got an email from her said, and it was prefaced, Dear Mr. Sawyer, mm-hmm. the first piece of advice I gave her was, okay, you got to act like you belong here. And one of the things you have got to know is that everybody in Hollywood addresses each other by their first names. Nobody ever calls you Mr. or Ms. or Mrs. out mm-hmm. here. It could be the, I, you know, I could be talking for the first time to the head of a major studio. Mm-hmm. We still address each other by our first names. And that's part of the con, if you will. And I don't mean that yeah. in a pejorative sense, but right. it's part of how you give people the confidence in you that you can do what you say you can do. And that's the biggest challenge of all. When mm-hmm. you meet and make that first impression that you you play the game the way it's supposed to be played. Uh, you know, it's... it's you know, I mean, I... I I have never worn a suit since I've lived in Los Angeles, except a tuxedo. <laughs> I don't own a suit. I, yeah. I have totally forgotten how to tie a necktie. Mm. I mean, and of course, that was all commonplace all the time I was growing up and when I lived in New York. Right, it's a, right. It's a, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, adapt yourself to the world that you want to occupy, that you, that you want to play the game in. Uh-huh. And it is a game. It is a game, <laughs> mm-hmm. but very one that can, can be won. Very, very interesting. Where can someone go to buy your books, get more information about you, and keep up with your latest happenings? Well, they can go to Bear Manor Media's website, or they can go to Amazon. Uh, I don't know that it's available in bookstores as yet, but uh, in either case, they can get the books. And uh, it, and as far as finding out about what I'm doing, uh, m- my website, thomasbsawyer.com, I have regarded from the day I set it up, from the day I decided to have a website, as the place where I tell people what I want them to know about me. <laughs> <laughs> and and it, that's where I sell my brand. And mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I think more people should should operate their websites that way. I'm able to edit it on a weekly basis or daily basis mm-hmm. if I want to. And I do make changes to keep people abreast if they're interested in, of what right. I'm doing. I, I know that they can find out more about me elsewhere on the web, but I, but the first place they're going to go when they Google me is my website. 
Right. And so right. that's where I is. I said I tell them what I want them to know. Right. Uh, that, that said, I also post. I also post. Uh, people can who are mm-hmm. interested can see my short films, my first documentary, which won a bunch of uh, awards both here and in Europe, uh, uh, called Reunion. They can uh, see a 15-minute highlight video of my opera about Jack Kennedy, which I'm very proud and passionate mm-hmm. about, which premiered at the Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut, uh, produced by the Schuberts. Uh, and uh, they can uh, they can you know find out about my books and uh, I have a writing book uh, fiction writing demystified which is standard you know curriculum mm-hmm. at a lot of schools mm-hmm. anyway that long windedly that's where they can find out about me and I hope they'll visit and if they want please email me and I'm delighted to strike up a conversation and. Uh, I mean, I also do Facebook and, you know, LinkedIn and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and tweeting, but I, I do that a lot less than most people. Fantastic. What's next for you? Well, besides launching the memoir and Nine Badass Secrets, I'm finishing another uh, Barney Moon detective novel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then I am going to turn my attention to short stories because... I have always been intimidated by the form. I've never tried one in my life. Uh, I have been so impressed by the great short story writers that I've read and whose work I love and have reread uh, Somerset Maugham and John O'Hara and uh, people of that that ilk that uh, mm-hmm. I, I never felt that I could possibly do that. Well, I'm going to give it a try anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because I like, I like the challenge. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. As we close, since our show is about people, family, and living life, what would you like to share as a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Well, as I said, uh, uh, believe that you deserve to have a good, entertaining, enjoyable life, a fun life, if you will, and follow your passions. You can make a living doing some variation on what it is that you love to do. Don't settle for taking a paying job at something you don't like so that you can do X in your spare time. You know, the chances are there's mm-hmm. a market for X. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and give it a shot. Give it a try because you're going to do that a whole lot better than you're going to do some job that you don't really like. Right. And So true. And as I said, one of the best ways to make it happen is to put yourself in personal contact with as many people as you can because at that point you will never know mm-hmm. where you're going to, where things are going to go, but in my life, I can tell you it's been one great moment after another from, you know, how I got started in television sure. with, with a lady just seeing my movie and saying, you should be writing for television. <laughs> and, and two weeks later, three weeks later, I was writing my first paying gig in Hollywood, a pilot, a comedy pilot of my making for CBS, uh, all because I had met 
this lady and these people at parties, at dinner parties, mm-hmm. social life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, uh, so you've got to make that effort, you know, and that's mm-hmm. sort of counter to the way people socialize these days. They think they're doing it by uh, by by uh, tweeting and uh, going on Facebook. Right. Believe me, right. it ain't the same. That's all that's right. at arm's length or further. Right. So true. Tom, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me next Tuesday morning, May 16th. My guest will be Paul O'Brien. He is a visionary entrepreneur, author, and philanthropic founder of the Deviation Foundation. Paul and I will be discussing about his latest book, Great Decisions, Perfect Timing, Cultivating Intuitive Intelligence. This book is a manifesto of achieving happiness and success using the author's visionary decision-making principles. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to FromMyMama'sKitchenTalkRadio.com. Thank you for listening and have a blessed week. Tom, it has been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again and have a blessed day. It's been a delight for me too, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Listening to Love Advice with Leanne. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Leanne. Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> Why, in your professional opinion, do you never take my calls off the air? Is this Carl? Yep, it's Carl. I mean, we had a few dates, everything was great, I thought. Uh... Well, you know, when you switch to Geico, you could save a lot of money on car insurance. Okay, awesome. You should call them. I will. Geico, because saving 15% or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Racetrack was raised in the South, where the four seasons are summer, summer, soda palooza, and summer. Down here, the weather's always as hot as our coffee, and that's real hot. That's why our soda, tea, and frozen drinks are real cold, and our refills are real free. Stop by Racetrack and get your soda palooza cup for just $11.99, or download the Racetrack app to get $2 off while supplies last. Offer in 731.